turn to Numbers chapter 10. We'll pick back up there. And as we come to Numbers chapter 10, we went last time down as far as verse 10. And as we come to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, after many uh, ways of preparation, now we find the children of Israel basically ready to depart on their journey to actually begin now this journey uh, that they'll take through the wilderness. Uh, it tells us in chapter 10, verse 11, Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month, so we're now about uh, 11 months, uh, they were there waiting sort of in the uh, Sinai area there, getting ready to now depart uh, and head towards the promised land. We get sort of the actual uh, calendar dates here of when this departure takes place. It was on that second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, at the end of chapter 9, we saw that this would be the way basically that God would lead them as they would journey through the wilderness, that God graciously provided this uh, manifestation of his presence in some way, this pillar of cloud that was there by day. It says that it appeared like a pillar of fire by night. And uh, the latter portion of chapter 9 from around verse 16 down to verse 23 just uh, reiterated how whenever that cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle and it began to move, that was the clear sign an indication to them, okay, the presence of God is wanting to move in a new direction or to move to a new location. And so all they were to do was just to keep their eye upon that. And when they would see the cloud begin to depart and move, they realized that was time for them to just stay in step uh, with the presence of God. And then whenever the uh, cloud would settle in and would uh, sort of uh, take its place and, and stop journeying wherever it would camp at, the children of Israel, according to the command of the Lord, they would stay put and they wouldn't move. Uh, and whether, as it said there, it was a few days or whether it was, uh, you know, a few weeks or months, whatever it was, by day or by night, uh, when the clouds stayed put and the presence of God was staying in a particular location, they were to stay in that location until they saw the Lord begin to move. And so God uh, just indicating so clearly how it is his heart to always lead us in our journeys, as they journeyed through the wilderness, uh, God did not leave them to figure it out by themselves. It was the heart of the Lord that he wanted to lead them. He wanted to graciously and mercifully provide leadership and direction and guide them uh, through what they were doing. And he was doing it in this very specific way with this cloud as they watched it move around. So here we now see, this is marking now the, the actual start of the journey itself. It says that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. Am I echoing? Yes. Yeah, thank you. I thought that. Uh, verse 12 says, And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journey, and the cloud then settled down in the wilderness of Paran. And there it is, verse 13. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. So uh, again, here we see the journey actually begins. Lots of preparation, lots of things to ready them. God ordered the camp. God established the priesthood. He told them the marching orders they were to move in and all these type of things. But then there came that day, particularly for them, it was on that second month and the second year when it was time, verse 12 says, to eventually set out. There was a time when their journey was to begin and they were to then step forward. It wasn't until God initiated that hour. It wasn't until God's presence was on the move. Uh, they weren't to get ahead of the Lord. They weren't to lag behind the Lord. But there came that time to set out. And here we now see the wilderness journey begins. You can almost mark in your Bible there. This is where now the journey begins for the children of Israel. And we'll be following them now as they journey through the wilderness uh, on their way to the promised land. They won't get there quite as quick as they could have. Uh, and as they should have, we'll see that. But the actual official date now starts. They start out there, verse 13, according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Verse 14 tells us, And the standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first, 
according to their armies. Over the army was Nashon, the son of Aminadab. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nethanel, son of Zuar. And over the tribe of the children of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. Now, what's being described to us here is now the marching order. Now, uh, to be merciful to you, we'll, we'll summarize this. That's my one gift to you in this Bible study tonight, this, the gift of summary here. Uh, th- we've already looked at this marching order in prior chapters here, and really from verse 14 down through verse... Uh, 28, it basically gives the order of the march of the children of Israel. If you again just remember briefly, uh, when God told them how they were to camp around the tabernacle area, basically it was in four quadrants. There were three tribes that positioned themselves in the north, there were three tribes that positioned themselves on the east, on the south, and the west, and then of course on the interior portion of that was uh, the family of Levi, Gershon, and Koath, and the Merites, and they were to be on the interior portion closer to the tabernacle. And when they would head out, uh, it was this uh, group of three, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, that they, they were to lead the way. And again, as we've pointed out before, just such a beautiful thing. As they set out on their journey, uh, notice who breaks camp first, who is setting out first, it's Judah. And again, what an interesting thing. As they begin their journey, Judah is the word that means praise. And what a great way to begin your journey. I, you know, Any journey spiritually should begin with worship before it's work, before it's doing anything else. The primary thing we are called to do in our journey in this life with the Lord is to be worshipers of God, to be people who, like Judah, who that name means praise. And again, we know that from the loins of Judah ultimately comes Jesus from the line of the tribe of Judah. So in some senses, you could say in the loins of Judah, um, you have Jesus there leading the way for the congregation as they journey. And just such a, a beautiful reminder, you know, these little uh, nuggets of insight to the Spirit of God, certainly no coincidences in all these things. You know, there's uh, things that God God's laid out in his word here for us and just those reminders that that is how any camp, any congregation or any people should be in their journey is, is Jesus should be leading the way. Uh, and then everyone else follow. Okay, where's Jesus going? And then let him lead the way. And uh, he's the head of the church and the one that we're following. And so Judah here sets off first in the marching order. Now, verse 17 then tells us the two families of the Levites, Gershon and Merari, they then set out next carrying the tabernacle. Uh, Verse 18 tells us then that Reuben and Simeon and the next group, Gad, then depart after that. Uh, Verse 21 tells us there's the other uh, family of the Levites, the Kohathites, They then set out carrying the holy things. So they're kind of stationed right in the middle uh, of everything. Again, the the holy things that were uh, representative elements of where the presence of God would be manifest. Uh, Verse 22 down through verse 28, as I said, just reiterates the next two groups that set out. You notice the summary there in verse 28. He says, and thus was the order of the march of the children of Israel according to their armies when they began their journey. Verse 29, Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, so this is another name he was referred to as Jethro, if you remember back in the book of Exodus, just another name. Many times they had uh, more than one name uh, in those ancient times here. So that's just referring to uh, Jethro, his his father-in-law. But this is now a reference to someone It says, Hobab, who was the son of his father-in-law. So this would be Moses' brother-in-law. So Moses now turns to his brother-in-law. They're about to depart on their journey and begin to make their way through the wilderness. And he now proposes something to his brother-in-law. He says to him, verse 29, speaking to Hobab, his brother-in-law, he says, we are setting out, notice, for the place which the Lord has said, I will give it to you Again, we can't help but to always underline and underscore when we see these reminders again. It, it, the Bible is very clear who God gave that land to. God gave it to the people of Israel. God sovereignly chose that those were the people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, 
who that land was given to. Again, God is the creator and the controller of the heavens and the earth. Everything, this entire globe, this whole ball of dirt, every ocean, every continent, every piece, it all belongs to God. And since God owns it all and is the possessor and creator of all, um, he can lease it out and give it to whoever he wants to. And, and this particular portion of land was divinely decreed to a particular people group. And here again, just this awareness, this constant scriptural indication, the Lord had said to them, I will give it to you. And, and Moses knew this very clearly. And look what he does, verse 29. So he proposes this invitation to his brother-in-law. He says, look, we're going to the place which the Lord has said, I will give to you. Come with us and we will treat you well. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. So Moses turns to him and he says, Hobab, he says, come with us. We're going to the land that God has promised us. We're going to experience and inherit the promises of God. And the Lord has promised good things to us. So he says, hey, come with us. Join us. Come experience the goodness of God and come experience his promises with us. And what what a beautiful picture here. The, The heart of Moses, as he's journeying towards the good things that God has promised him, what's he doing? He's inviting other people to take the journey with him. And, you know, in some senses, spiritually, that's, that's really what our calling is, even as Christians from a New Testament perspective. We should be inviting people along with us in the journey. We should be saying to people, listen, I'm headed ultimately towards experiencing everything that God's intended for me. And, and hey, why don't you join me? Why don't you join me? Come along with me and, and, and experience the promises of God with me. The Lord's promised good things to us. And as Christians, in our journey, one of the things we certainly should be doing is inviting people to come along with us in the journey. Whether it's our family members, our brothers, our brother-in-laws, our co-workers, our neighbors, one of the things we should be doing, and Moses is a great reminder of here, is not just taking the journey ourselves and saying, hey, I know I'm on the right track. And I know I'm headed towards the goodness of God and the promises of God, but we should be making intentional efforts to ask and invite others to join us along with us to ultimately experience the good things that God's promised to us as believers and eternal life that we're headed towards. Verse 30, and he said to him, however, I will not go. And guess what? People are going to say to you sometimes, thanks, but no thanks. And that's okay. And he says, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my own relatives. So, again, it seems Hobab didn't really have much of an interest. He, he thought, you know what, I appreciate the offer. Thanks for extending the opportunity, but it really doesn't interest me. Uh, I think I'm just going to go back to where I came from, back to my own people, to my own land. That's what's familiar to me, to my own relatives. Uh, and you know what? We have no control over how people respond. And some people at times will show interest. Others will say, hey, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Appreciate the invitation. Uh, we're simply called to put out the invitation. Uh, but Moses here shows you his passion because he, he, he with tactfulness, but yet persistence, doesn't just say, okay, whatever. Look what he says, verse 31. Moses said, please do not leave inasmuch as you know, and notice the word there, how, not where we are to camp. God told them where to camp. That was the the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So uh, Moses isn't indicating here, you know, I think we'd rather have you as a a desert tour guide and we'll, we'll give up on this presence of God thing. That wasn't the case here. He's saying to him, you know how we're to camp in the wilderness and you should be, or excuse me, can be our eyes and it shall be if you go with us. Indeed, it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So Moses persists a little bit. He doesn't just quickly give up. He says, look, please, please reconsider. And he does something very wise here. He commends him. And he admonishes something of worth within him, you know, honoring his dignity as individual. And even though at this time he wasn't per se maybe a follower of Jehovah God, he says, but look, you know what? You really have something beneficial 
that could assist us it seems that Hobab again being a wilderness and desert dweller in that area he says hey you know the land and you know the terrain so you know the watering holes and you maybe know what areas we uh, perhaps shouldn't go and what might be the better route again there's always more than one way is there not to kind of get maybe from this location to, to that particular location and he said hey you know you're familiar with the terrain you have expertise in this area and, and that could help us we could utilize your assistance. And, and here I just see tremendous wisdom in Moses, not only in the way he's relating to people, but, but also in the sense of understanding you know, that balance between you know, divine leading and looking to God and praying and following the presence of God, but also realizing that doesn't mean we have to set aside things like common sense uh, you know, and, and human involvement and so forth. And again, God would show them where to go but here Moses said, but you know what? It sure would help because you have an expertise in this particular area of wilderness journeying and, and you could help us in the process to accomplish those things more effectively and to travel more strategically. It might be keeping us safe and helping us to make a, a more productive journey along the way here. And, and man, I look at this and I think, well, this is really wise. I think sometimes as Christians, you know, there are ways in which we can sometimes relate to people that aren't saved uh, that makes a difference in regards to making them feel appreciated and valued rather than, okay, well, if you don't want to come with us, then fine, forget you, burn in hell. You know, I, I, I think there are ways at times where we can say, hey, look, uh, you know, w w we could use your help in this. You know, case in point, let's say, for example, you know, maybe somebody doesn't want to accept the Lord or they don't want to come to church. You know, but, but maybe, maybe we're doing something as a church. Maybe we're doing a, a construction project. And we, so we say, hey, look, you know what? We, we could really use your expertise and, and help in this area. Would you like to come and just assist us and, you know, and just allow them to be involved in something? Allow them to be exposed to other people of God and to interact in certain ways and to appreciate and to realize that, you know, again, that there may be something still that just in their human dignity that does have some worth and these are connection points you know these are ways whereby we make contacts and relationship i'm talking about you know compromising and saying hey you know you want to preach for us you're a good community i'm not talking i'm not talking about putting a pagan in the pulpit and letting them launch the word of god and false doctrine but th again in these practical aspects of interacting with unsaved people you know th there are smart businessmen that we can learn things from. There are you know, people with real aptitudes and skills for certain things that we can still learn things from and glean things from and benefit from. And, and here Moses, with his brother-in-law, just a, a really wise and strategic thing. He says to him, look, please, uh, you can help us as we camp and travel in the wilderness. And if you go with us, he says, whatever good the Lord will do to us, he says, th then you're going to experience the goodness of God in your life too. And I'll tell you something. When unbelievers interact with God's people, there is, I believe, a reciprocal blessing that can come into their life where they can be benefited by being around the presence of God. Case in point, in the Old Testament, remember Joseph? It says the Lord blessed Potiphar's house. Why? Because Joseph was a servant and Joseph was the steward over his household. And it says the Lord blessed Potiphar for Joseph's sake. And, and what a wonderful thing to allow people at times to have interaction in our lives, to find that way where we, again, we're not being influenced by the world, but we're not insulating ourselves from the world and having no contact with them. And that never is a, is a healthy thing here. Again, I love this, inviting them along in the journey. He says, please come with us. You'll experience the goodness of God. And again, we're not told specifically but it does seem that he embraced the offer. Mainly, I'm just a pretty simple person. Verse 33 says, so they departed. Again, the Bible doesn't say specifically if he said, nah, no thanks. But to me, that seems to be a very good indication that this second level of persuasion made him reconsider and, and he traveled with them. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey for three days. Now take notice of that because it's going to, as we begin chapter 11, verse 1, they're only three days into this journey when chapter 11, verse 1 happens. But let's finish 10 first. Don't, don't read ahead on me. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them. So again, that's it's always good to have God's presence before us moving and we're following where he's going. The ark of the Lord went before them for three days journey. I love just the way this reads. Look at it. Verse 33 to search out a resting place 
for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So the presence of the Lord, again, was manifested there around the ark. Again, the ark of the Lord. Remember, that was where the the meeting with God took place. That was where God manifested his presence. And of course, uh, for you and I today, you know, we meet with God at the presence of Christ. It's in Jesus. That's the meeting place for us uh, with the Lord. But the presence of God manifest through the ark and the cloud going before them. And look what it says, went ahead of them to search out a resting place for them. I like this. As, as we're journeying through this life, notice, God takes it upon himself to go before you and to prepare the place for you that he's taking you towards. He goes ahead of you and he is preparing the way and preparing the place for you where you're going. And in the same way, in the process, he's also preparing you for the place that he's taking you to. So he goes ahead of you and prepares the place for you to, before you even get there. And at the same time, he is preparing you personally for the place in which he plans to take you ahead. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 1. Just listen to this before we move on. It says, Deuteronomy 1 sort of recounting this same experience. It says, yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God. Listen to verse 33. Who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents and to show you the way that you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. So what a wonderful thing that God goes and searches out before us, that place that he's leading us to, that next location, that next stage of life, that next season of life, that next open door, that next experience that the Lord goes ahead of us. He readies the place. He gets things prepared for us. And at the same time, he's with us, preparing us personally to get ready uh, so that we can experience what he has in store for us. And I love how it says he went to search out a resting place, a resting place. That's where God likes to lead his people to a place of rest. Not restlessness, but rest. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And he says, and you will find rest for your souls. And I'll tell you something, no matter what journey the Lord's taken you on and where he's leading you and your journeys through the wilderness of this life and whether it's a, a, a desert experience or whatever, if the Lord is leading you and the Lord is going before you and the Lord is the one whose presence you are allowing to lead the way, there can be a restful experience within your soul. No matter how chaotic and restless the circumstances can be, there can be an internal rest. I think that when we are journeying in life and there's restlessness within us, in our journey, I think those are occasions when we need to stop and hit the pause button and do a little spiritual inventory. Lord, if you're leading, why am I so restless about this? Lord, if this is where you've led me, or Lord, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, then, then why do I feel so restless? Why is there an absence of peace? Why am I so agitated in my soul? Because Jesus, you said your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that it would give rest to my soul. And see, the circumstances, be that what they may, when God is leading, he leads us to a resting place. God brings us to rest. There's a rest within the soul when God is involved. And I think that restlessness sometimes is an indication that maybe perhaps we're, we're not fully in tune with what God's doing. And God's letting that restlessness be there to cause us to seek him out and to search him and to say, Lord, is this where I'm supposed to be? Or, or, or is it because I've, I've veered off course or I've got the head of you? Or, or maybe I'm lagging behind you. And, and here God leads them to a place, not what was a wearying place, but to a resting place as they came to their camp. Verse 35 says, and so it was whenever the ark set out that Moses would say, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. 
and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So it seems this was maybe a, a prayer, a pattern of, of how Moses would pray. Again, we see this man was a man of prayers. He led the people when they would depart. He would speak forth. He would pray and seek God for his protection and his preservation. And again, as they would then settle in and come to a place of rest, he would cry out to the Lord for his hand of involvement. Return, O Lord, settle among us and that the God's hand would be uh, intimately involved even as they were stationary and sitting still for a time. Now, chapter 11 begins by saying this. And keep in mind, it's been how many days since they began the journey officially? Three days. They've made it three days, three days into the, journey, into the journey. Now, when the people complained, three days they made it. God has been doing for them over the past year, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He's given them manna from heaven. He's given them water from the rock. He's performed, remember, the incredible plagues. He's part of the Red Sea. I mean, God has shown them his power and his hand. He's given them the law. He has done miracle after miracle, demonstrating his love and his wisdom and his protection and his power and his involvement and in all that they're doing. And they begin the journey. They get three days into the journey. And three days into the journey... Already, it says the people complained. And look at the language. I think this is what speaks volumes just in the simple way it is written by the Spirit of God for us. The people complained. Notice, what's so big deal about complaining? It displeased the Lord, for he heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them, and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. So three days in, they begin to complain. Now notice, the Holy Spirit does not even bother recording for us what they were complaining about. We're not told. We're not even given any information what they complained about. In a sense, you can say they were complaining about nothing. <laughs> Did they really have something to complain about? God does not even take the time to put the ink to the page to tell us the subject or the reason why they were even complaining. All God says is that they were complaining already and that that complaining was something that he heard, number one, that he was displeased with, number two, that his anger was aroused by, number three, and that he pretty severely judged and disciplined as the result of what they were doing. Now, 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 what's complaining? In a sense, complaining is really simply just verbally expressing discontent in regards to our circumstances, our, our situations. And why does complaining displease the Lord so much? Well, very simply, if we as God's people say that we believe God's in control of our life. God takes care of us. We're, we're following the presence of God. God's leading us. He's guiding us and watching over us. And we're his people. And, and, he and, and we say those things and we affirm those things. And yet then we begin to complain at certain stages and seasons of life in relation to our circumstances. And we're complaining and expressing discontent and criticism over why is this like that? And why is this like that? And, and, and what are we doing? We're complaining about the way God takes care of us. In a sense, we're criticizing God. We're criticizing God before other people of God. And if we do it before unsaved people in the world, we're basically making God look bad and saying, well, God doesn't really love me that much. And God doesn't really take that good a care of my life because if he did, he wouldn't be allowing me. And when we begin to complain we're in essence complaining about the way that God's treating us and the way that God's taking care of us because he's the one who's allowed us to experience the circumstances that we have. Now listen, I'm not saying we have to be you know, super spiritual and act like we love the experiences we're going through. I know there are times we go through hardships and difficulties. It doesn't, it's not the same thing as enduring a hard time and maybe being discouraged or maybe feeling a little downcast or you know, just struggling under the weight and load of something. But, but this is a very different thing in comparison to, to, to beginning to complain and to grumble 
and to begin to express words that are you know complaining about the circumstances and keep in mind there's a part of complaining and again we're all very prone to it that really is the direct result in a lot of ways of just a a foolish sense of honestly kind of arrogant entitlement that somehow, again, it doesn't even say why they're complaining. What do they have to be complaining about? Well, I mean, is there really, do they have a right to even complain? Again, probably part of the reason why we read here that when they complained, it displeased the Lord. Now, now that's just strong language that is a constant reminder to me. Paul says in the New Testament, do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's hard. That's hard. But when I realize that such a thing is a sin against the Lord in such a way it displeases the Lord when we are complaining about our lives, complaining about things or our circumstances or what has or hasn't happened to us and we're actually complaining regarding it, that it angers the Lord and the fire of the Lord actually dealt with this in a way of judgment. It says, came down and consumed the camp. Now, what was the fire of the Lord? We don't know. It does not tell us. But whatever it was, it literally caused the loss of life. And it says those who experienced this, interesting little insight, the Holy Spirit tells us, verse 1, were those who were on the outskirts of the camp. And I just point this out to you because the Holy Spirit puts that in there for us and nothing is in God's word for a vain reason. Those who were complaining and those who the fire of the Lord came down and judged for the complaining it says, were those who were on the outskirts of the camp, those who were on the fringes of the camp. Now, if you were on the outskirts of the camp, what would that mean? It would mean that you were the furthest away from the presence of God. And, you know, I look at that and it's just a reminder to me that a lot of times people who are critical, who are always complaining, who are always grumbling, people who are complainers in congregations, people, who, a lot of times what that stems from, it's not the people who are on the inside of the camp because a lot of times they're too busy to complain. <laughs> they're busy doing the work within the camp and, and they're, they're involved and experiencing the presence of God which brings a sense of inner contentment no matter what the circumstances are. But it tends to be that those on the outskirts who perhaps aren't engaged and aren't involved or have distanced themselves from the presence of God and feel that their ministry is to complain or to criticize. Why is it like this? And why are we there? And why are we doing that? And, and I just find it interesting. It's not those who are on the internal part of the camp. It's those on the outskirts. These are the ones that are complaining. And I think it's just a good reminder. When I find myself sometimes beginning to be guilty of complaining, sometimes the Lord says, maybe it's because you're not quite in tune or as close to the presence of God as you ought to be. Maybe you began to distance yourself in some ways, maybe going through the motions still among the camp, but you somewhat departed and drifted away a little bit. And the symptomatic effect is that complaining, which obviously was a very displeasing and dangerous thing because, again, no pun intended, I mean, those complainers, they got burnt pretty bad. And, and they lost their lives, literally, it says, the text tells us here. Verse 2, notice, says, Then the people, when they saw the fire of God fall, they cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So they turn to Moses, seeing the severity of this judgment that begins to happen because of their complaining. And what does Moses do? Again, graciously, he's a man of prayer. Their leader, Moses, he begins to intercede for them. It says Moses prayed for them. As a result of his intercession, the fire was quenched, or you could say the judgment of God was stayed and the judgment of God was then restrained and, and, and diverted from them. And what a beautiful example here, Moses, of this intercessor as this one who stood in the gap for those who the judgment of God was beginning to come upon him because he stands in the gap and prays. In some ways, God uses him to divert the judgment of God. I look at Moses here and I think, what a beautiful picture of Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. All of us deserve the fire of the judgment of God and it's through Jesus' life and Jesus' intercession and Jesus standing in the gap for us that in a sense, the fire of God's wrath and judgment is quenched against us and it's turned away from our lives as guilty individuals 
because Jesus stands in the gap as our intercessor and Savior. Verse 3, it says, So they called the name of that place Taborah, which means burning, because there the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude, verse 4, who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. I hope they had breath mints there in Egypt. Verse 6, But now our whole being is dried up and there is nothing at all in this refrigerator except manna before our eyes. So notice the, the, the discontent, the, the complaining. It, it, it now begins to, to permeate. You would think after that fire fell, uh, people would say, I don't know if that complaining thing is really a good idea. I mean, you could draw really, it doesn't take a genius. If I was in the camp of Israel on that day, you could draw two simple lessons from verse one. Um, complaining is not wise. And number two, Standing next to someone who's complaining is not safe either. But apparently, that somehow still permeated because complaining is contagious. It, it, it's like an infectious disease, that attitude. It, it permeates, and now this next level of grumbling and complaining begins to happen. So the first sin they're guilty of is complaining. Now notice the second sin together with the complaining. It, it, it snowballs now into this yielding to intense fleshly cravings, giving in to cravings, natural carnal cravings to be satisfied. And notice what this stems from, verse 4. It stems from those who were the mixed multitude among the children of Israel who yielded to this intense Craving. Now, we saw this phrase before, mixed multitude, back in the book of Exodus. In chapter 12, it says that when they were coming out of Egypt, the children of Israel, that there was a mixed multitude. We're just told back in chapter 12 of Exodus, and a mixed multitude went out with them. Now, this mixed multitude basically is an indication that these particular people were not Jews. They were probably uh, uh, potentially uh, Egyptians who maybe did not enjoy the lifestyle in Egypt. And so they saw these people, the Jews, they heard about their God. They saw some of the miracles of God. So they decided, hey, uh, looks like there's something happening among that crowd and, and I'm ready for a change anyway. So, and, and they decided to tag along with them and to journey with them through the wilderness. This could be a mixed multitude as a result of maybe intermarriage between a Jew and an Egyptian. But the mixed multitude here represents people who are not fully devoted to the things of God. They're, they're, they're people who, in a sense, they don't mind being around the people of God. They don't mind being in the midst of the people of God. They don't mind, if you understand, mixing it up with God's people and being among them. But they really have no interest in the things of God themselves. They're not in the midst of God's people because they really are interested in the life of the Spirit or hungry for the Word of God or really want to follow and serve God. They just have kind of come to like hanging out in the midst of the camp of God's people. I don't think that's a bad deal. You know, typically God's people, the congregation of God, you know, are, are typically a little more loving than the world are. Probably going to find a little more sincere friends and people who treat you a little kindly. And, um, you know, there are people who at times throughout history, whether it was the congregation of Israel and even in churches today, there will always be that mixed multitude that will always be among every assembly and every congregation of God's people. People who aren't genuinely born again, they're not following Jesus Christ, but you know, they, they like to be with God's people. They don't mind sitting in a church service. They, they like some of the uh, you know, philosophical or moral ideas that the Bible has to say. They, they kind of like listening to a, you know, a sermon and they kind of enjoy you know, mingling with God's people, but, but they're not genuinely followers of God. They're just a mixed multitude. They're just mixing with God's people. Now, the problem with that is this is because they're not genuinely following God or devoted to God, but they're just mixing things up among God's people and just sort of hanging out among them, is there are also people who have very strong carnal appetites still. There are people whose heart and appetite is still in Egypt, 
even though they're dwelling among God's people and God's congregation. So their heart is still longing for and craving for the things of the flesh and the things of Egypt was a type of the world. And when they are intermingling among God's people, what they do is they seek to introduce carnality and, and, and carnal things among God's people and they therefore become a very dangerous thing in the presence of God's people. And here we see them causing a problem among the nation of Israel here. It says it was they who yielded to intense craving. And what do they do? They, they start the complaining wagon of, uh, of you know, who's going to give us some meat to eat? And when, when are we going to get something that's a little, you know, a, a little more, you know, fulfilling, a little more satisfying? I mean, this, this is so bland. All we're doing is giving this same manna every day. And they begin to reflect back upon the life of Egypt. And what are they doing? They're, they're, they're reflecting back to Egypt as if somehow that life was actually the glory days. You see what they're saying there? Who will give us meat? We remember the fish which we ate so freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Oh, and what? Did you ever notice how you know, our memories of the past life can really be very distorted. I mean, wait, wait, did you forget in Egypt you were slaves under the harsh treatment of taskmasters that you lived a life in bondage? And, and here they are looking at the old life like that was the glory days and reinterpreting their history. And sometimes we can do this. You know, we begin to struggle a little bit in the midst of our journey and, and we start thinking that, oh man, you know, maybe... I, Maybe I ought to just go back and live in the world again. And, 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 and you know, here we, you know, we're three days into the journey or a short way into the journey and there's a little bit of bump in the road or a challenge and then we start reinterpreting our past and thinking, you know, maybe that life back in the world was better. I mean, there was, and, and here they're just thinking completely distorted and have this mindset, oh, our whole being, it's dried up. There's nothing here, nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. In other words, we need something a little more interesting, a little more with more spice and something that's, you know, be a little more enjoyable. And again, this is what the mixed multitude kind of attitude brings. We need something a little more exciting, something that is a little more, you know, stimulating something not just manna just plain manna always manna every day the same manna and 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 they always want something more exciting because they're driven by their carnal appetites they're driven by the fleshly desires and they yield it says to that intense craving verse 7 says now the manna remember we talked about it before was like coriander seed its color like the color of bedelium which is like a a whitish yellowish color and the people went about and gathered it ground it in millstones or beat it in the mortar and cooked it in pans and made cakes of it and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil and whenever the dew fell on the camp in the night the manna fell on it now we looked at the beginning the institution of god beginning to supply the manna for the children of israel every day back in chapter 16 of exodus but here again as they're complaining about the manna as if somehow it's not sufficient it's not good enough it's too bland god here just brings this reinforcement and reminder that that manna was completely sufficient for them it supplied and it had somehow a nutritional value to it that was enough to sustain them with everything that they needed as they journeyed through the wilderness. And it, again, it wasn't something that they couldn't prepare in different ways. Verse 8 referring to how they could utilize it in different ways. It, it did have a taste to it that was pleasant. It was like a pastry. That always sounds interesting to me. I'm, you know, a pastry prepared with oil. And so again, this had everything that they needed. It was sufficient. The problem was, is the flesh is always looking for something more intense, something more stimulating somehow. And, and this is the, the complaint that they're making against this. Well, look at verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping now throughout all the families, everyone at the door of his tent. And the, again, anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. And Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? So now they've got the leader complaining. 
He says, Lord, what are, you, what are you doing? Why are you afflicting me with this problem? And why have I not found favor in your sight? And you've laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Lord, did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom and as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land where you swore to their fathers? Where am I going to get meat, Lord, he says, to, to feed all these people? Now I want you to notice something. What mistake is Moses making? In the midst of the discouragement and the weight and listening to the complaints of people, which is a wearying thing on any leader, whether it's in a business, an organization, within spiritual life, he begins to get weighed down with that. But then he begins to actually think somehow that it was his responsibility to solve the people's need and problems. You see what he says there in verse 13? Lord, they want meat. Where am I going to get meat to feed all these people? It wasn't his responsibility to get meat to feed the people. They were God's people. In a sense, you can see the confusion. He's contradicting, Lord, these are your people. You conceive them. I didn't conceive them. Why do I have to bear the burden? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. Verse 14, he says, I am not able to bear all these people. Here's the key word, alone. Lord, I can't do this by myself because the burden is too heavy for me. Verse 15, if you treat me like this, please, Lord, how about you just kill me? <laughs> Lord, th th take my resignation or take my life. And, and, you know, sometimes I think we all come to that place in our lives, whether it's exasperation with maybe raising our children or whatever our responsibility, we just say, Lord, you know, just I'm just ready. Just I'm done. Just, Lord, I quit. I give up or just take my life away from me. Then I don't even have to hand in my resignation just sovereignly remove my position off the planet altogether. <laughs> Bring me home into heaven, Lord. Just I, I, I'm through with this and kind of that overwhelmed experience here. Moses is going through it, he says. Verse 16, so the Lord said to Moses, gather to me, here's a solution, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. And bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them that they shall bear the burden of the people with you and that you may not bear it yourself. So uh, here God says, Moses, look, I have a solution for this. And we're going to see he has two solutions here. The first one we look at here is that God says, Moses, you, you, need, to, you need some assistance. You need to delegate some of the responsibility and the burden of this. So I want you to assemble, he says, 70 other men. Men, notice verse 16, whom you know, he says, verse 16, elders of the people and officers over them. In other words, people who are men of good reputation. Men who you know, Moses, you've spent time with them. They've been operating and functioning together with you in other capacities. You know them. The people know them. They have a good reputation. And he says, I want you to select those 70 men. And he says, and I will come down and talk with you. And I'm going to take the spirit, the spirit of God that is upon you, the same anointing of God's spirit upon Moses. And I'm going to put the spirit of God and the anointing upon them as well so that they might help you bear the burden so that you won't have to bear it yourself. So God tells him to select 70 other men to assist in the work. Now this is where, just you know, food for thought here, where the, the concept and the historical idea of the Sanhedrin comes from in the New Testament, where you had those 70 uh, men who were part of a religious ruling council in the days of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, this is where they take that from, those 70 men, the Sanhedrin that we see. They take that from here, the justification of how they assemble that. Now, just for time's sake, because we need to wrap up for this evening, and this chapter almost gives like a, a back and forth thing. Um, look with me down in verse... 24. Let's just look how this specific first solution of assistance is given to Moses first. It says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered the 70 men, elders of the people, and placed them around the tabernacle. And then the Lord came down in the cloud, and he spoke to him, and he took, took of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, who was upon him, 
the baptism, the anointing, the empowerment of the Spirit upon Moses' life for ministry. And he placed that same Spirit upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the Spirit rested upon them. Notice one of the manifestations of the Spirit being upon them that they prophesied. In other words, they spoke forth the word of God. We've talked about prophecy before. It doesn't necessarily mean that they spoke in a predictive sense. That's one element of prophecy, but they spoke forth the word of God. This was a, a evidence of the Spirit's anointing and the, the, the empowering, the coming upon of the Spirit upon their life is they spoke forth words from God, utterance that he gave them. Verse 25 says, notice, but they never did so again. So this was a one-time experience. Uh, one time where at the initiation of that outpouring of the Spirit upon them, they spoke the words of God. Look at this little insight, verse 26. But two men had remained in the camp. We're not told why they remained. Did they you know, miss the camel bus on the way in? We're not explaining. We're just, they remained. For some reason, they weren't present when the 70 were already selected. These are two of the 70. So Moses has chosen them. These are the two of the 70 that he selected. For some reason, they weren't there when God did this, only 68 were present. The name of them were Eldad and Medad, and the Spirit, though they weren't present, rested on them. Now they were among those who listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they still prophesied in the camp. And a young man, and this shows you this is spiritual immaturity, a young man thought that that's not right. If they weren't there, they don't deserve the blessing of God. They weren't present. They weren't in the meeting. So this young man, notice, he runs, it says, and, and tells Moses, Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying in the camp. They didn't show up to the meeting. And the Holy Spirit baptized them and came upon them. That's not fair. The other guys showed up and the Spirit is coming upon them too and they're, they're ministering too. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, and bless his loyal heart, He's learning ministry too. He says, one of the choice men, Moses, his assistant, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. They shouldn't be doing this. And Moses said, look, are you zealous that is jealous for my sake? In other words, Joshua, do, do you think this is about protecting my position? Protecting my authority as if somehow I'm the only one that God works through? <laughs> or I'm the only one that God can work through or wants to work through? Joshua, you have a lot to learn. Joshua, God doesn't give his spirit by measure. He says, Joshua, I appreciate your loyalty, but are you, are you jealous for me? Look what he says there in conclusion. He says, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That's the heart of God. Because see, Moses understood something. Moses understood that it's all by grace. This is what Moses understood in his heart. They were upset because these two men, they didn't show up to the meeting like they were supposed to. And the same experience happened to them as happened to all the other 68 faithful men who showed up. And it bothered them because they were thinking, hey, they deserved it. They showed up. And Moses said, look, nobody deserves anything. Nobody deserves anything. It's all by grace. And he said, what I wish is that everybody... I wish the Spirit of God would fall powerfully upon everybody and everybody would be prophesying and speaking forth the word of the Lord because a Spirit-filled people are a fruitful people. They're people who will be a productive people. And, and Moses understood, look, this isn't about a territorial thing. This is, about, this is about an eternal thing that God's Spirit is wanting to work in the lives of all His people. Let's stand. Let's, let's pray.